open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Nitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Okay, welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have a tremendous interview today. We have the Honorable Ed Moy. He was director, the 38th director of the U.S. Mint. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Ed. Thanks a lot, Trace. Great to be with you. Been uh, following you for a bit. Uh, great to spend time with you here. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, let's let's get started with it. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 5 of the United States Constitution gives the root authorization to coin money and regulate the value thereof. That's You fulfilled that office, right, at the U.S. Mint yes. as the director. So the Constitution laid the groundwork for the uh, first federal agency created after the Constitution, which was the United States Mint. It was established in 1792. The first director of the Mint was David Rittenhouse, who was a noted scientist who lived in Philadelphia. And uh, because Philadelphia was the capital at the time, uh, that's where we located the first Mint. The Mint since then expanded to four different manufacturing locations. West Point, which does our precious metal bullion. Philadelphia and Denver, which does our circulating coins, and San Francisco, which does our collector's coins. We also have the administrative headquarters in downtown Washington, D.C., and uh, we also have the responsibility for protecting our nation's gold reserves, of which the largest chunk is in Fort Knox, but the other two chunks are stored at the Denver Mint as well as the West Point Mint. Now, there, there's kind of rumors, like... The gold is like cardboard boxes painted gold. But, I mean, yeah. any, any truth to that? Or well, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. If we like your podcast too much. To I guess I don't need to know. <laughs> now, in all seriousness, uh, I'm one of the few, few Americans that have been able to uh, see the gold. That was my responsibility. So I visited Fort Knox five times during my tenure. My responsibilities were to make sure that the gold was there and properly stored and taken care of. And so I have physically peered into the vaults, which are little peepholes in front of the uh, safe doors, checked that the gold was there. There's uh, paper seals that are tamper-proof that are placed over the doors. And I've done the same to our West Point Mint and our Denver Mint. Uh, so I can assure you that I have seen the gold. <laughs> and it, And all of it exists. Yeah. What other duties and responsibilities does the Mint have? And how is it different from, say, the Bureau of Engraving? Yep, that's a really good point. Uh, people normally confuse us. Uh, they think the Mint makes all the money in our country. Uh, the Mint specifically makes the coinage of our country. So the three statutory responsibilities that we have, one is to make the circulating coins for our country. And for that, my only business relationship is with the Federal Reserve. And so we make sure that as commercial banks need more change and uh, the Federal Reserve inventories get depleted, the Federal Reserve then places orders with the Mint based on the velocity of demand uh, to replace their inventory. The second business uh, that we have is precious metal bullion. And we in the United States make gold, silver, and platinum uh, bullion coins. Uh, for gold and silver, we're the premier makers in the world. Uh, we, we set the world standard. The third responsibility that we have is if we have any excess capacity after making circulating coins and uh, precious metal bullion, we can make collector's coins. And so we can make precious metal versions of normal circulating coins. We can make them in better finishes, like proof finishes. Congress also passes legislation at least twice a year authorizing us to make uh, two collector's coins each year, of which the profits of those collector's coins goes to the designated charity. So, for example, the uh, 100th anniversary of the Boy Scouts of America. We were authorized to make a coin commemorating that because Congress felt that it's important for Americans to know about it. 
and uh, any money that we're able to make net of all our costs and marketing and so on then goes to a charity designated by Congress and in this case supports the Boy Scouts. Where do you get the gold and silver to make these coins? Yeah. So, for example, uh, the legislation that gives us the authority to make gold bullion coins, both 22 carat and 24 carat, is very specific. And it says that we have to make those coins out of gold that has been mined in the United States. Now, for that, we go out to metal fabricators who make the planchets or the blank discs for us of a certain quality that we require, but we put the burden on them to make sure that the gold used is uh, is mined here in the United States and they have to certify as such. How does it actually work? I mean, silver, for example, you'll get 90% of the price change in 10% of the time. And I mean, it'd be nice if everybody bought their silver on a regular, <laughs> yeah. you know, 12-month uh, kind of basis and, and it was very predictable, like what the supply uh, needed to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it seems that everybody likes to buy it when the price goes up. I don't know. <laughs> I know. Like, They're kind of chasing the market in a way, right? How does that impact, uh, like, the mint and, and actually producing these physical coins? I mean, there, there, there's a lot of lot that goes into all that, especially when you got to get metal from a, a hole in the ground in the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Trace, that's a really good uh, question. And in short, uh, the mint is in essence a manufacturing operation, right? Uh, So we take, uh, we view our value added as being able to stamp the metal and convert it from just precious metal into a coin, which has a denomination, which has a government standard in weights and measures, et cetera. And so that's where our value added is. So when demand goes up, uh, you have all these things that need to happen, both internally uh, to make sure you have uh, enough production capacity and externally to make sure that you have a supply chain that can handle the uh, increased production. And so uh, just to give you an example, during the financial crisis of 2007, our steady state in gold bullion production was roughly 200,000 ounces. And over the course of two years, it went from 200,000 ounces to 1.4 million. Oh, good. 700% increase. <laughs> Uh, for silver, we went from a steady state of roughly 10 million ounces a year to currently, last year was uh, the mint's historic record of 44 million ounces. So a four times increase uh, over that. And so when you have that, uh, you know, a couple things need to happen. Internally, the production capacity, you have to buy more presses. Uh, each press takes about a year because they're all custom made for us. And so there's a lead time, and plus you have X amount of geographic space within your facility, and you uh, produce these according to a circuit. And if you have more presses, you got to redesign your circuit internally, and you also have to hire up. So it's not like there are uh, coin press operators who are, are experts who are uh, in oversupply in the market. You have to hire people, train them into their jobs, and so there's a lead time. And then you have to build it out from one or two shifts to three shifts a day. And then you have to build up your repair capacity for machining the tool parts that you need because you're going to be wearing them out so often. So that's the internal production side. On the uh, supply chain, we've outsourced the, uh, because we don't believe that's our value added, so we've outsourced the metal fabrication. So, for example, silver, we have silver fabricators, and we just say we need to go from 200,000 planchets to 1 million, 1 million uh, planchets. <laughs> well, uh, it's not like you can go to Walmart and say, <laughs> I'm putting in an order, can you have it delivered next week? And Am- don't Amazon do doesn't carry these. <laughs> <laughs> and these are very, very specialized production. And plus, because we set the standard, we have to assay this because when we sell a one-ounce gold coin, we are guaranteeing there's one ounce of pure gold in it. And so if it isn't, someone can turn that back into the, to the mint, and we have to replace it with a coin that meets the standard. Oh, interesting. So, so, we so have, you, you identify it. Yes, we have to make sure every single planchet is the right weight, density specifications, and everything because we produce so much of it. 
And so all that's a very complicated process. And when you have to increase your uh, supply, you know, by magnitudes, by orders of magnitude, the suppliers are coming to us saying, well, we're running a business too. And, (laughs) you know, if you want us to give, you know, triple our output, uh, we want a guarantee so we can, you know, break up that capital expenditure over X years and pay it all off. Well, then I need to make a business decision. Is it really important to, uh, is it good for the taxpayer for us to make such a big commitment because demand could fall off the cliff tomorrow, right. but yet we'd be committed to buying all these planches. So that's not good for the taxpayer. But then you're in a conundrum because the company doesn't want to put in the investment to expand because they don't know if that business is going to be around. And so you have all those complicated things that need to be uh, worked out before you can ramp up production. So how, how does the mint compare to say the post office? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the post office runs like a $14 billion deficit or something yeah. in three months. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and yet we've got FedEx and UPS yep. that can do this job. Like, I mean, how's the mint compare to say the post office oh, uh, and the Bureau of Engraving? Because I think we've got two different issues there. Yes. So, uh, so the mint actually makes a quote profit. And I put that in quotes. Maybe the best way to explain it is via, you know, I explain the different businesses that we're in. I can explain the business model okay. uh, that we're in. So on circulating coins, because when the Constitution authorized the mint, it was commonly viewed that coins had the equivalent of metal value in each of the coins. Right. The definition of a dollar, like in the 1792 Coinage yeah. Act, I think Section 11 371.25 grains of grains fine, of silver. fine silver. Yes, that's right. So um, it was purity yeah. and it was weight. Yeah. And, right? and if uh, the, the people working at the mint messed around, like Section 19... <laughs> yeah, there was very, capital punishment. Very, right? very, yeah, they shall be guilty of a felony. Anybody who debases or makes worse the currency shall be guilty of a felony and mm-hmm. shall suffer death. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it was yeah. like it was taken very, very seriously by the founders to know what our our coin was, mm-hmm. you know, whether it was a silver dollar, which wasn't necessarily minted by the mint, but still circulated, yep. or we had a more standardized unit, so we knew like what we were trading with. Exactly, and so I want your podcast listeners to know how impressed I am that Trace is a currency nerd. Good. So, explaining the business model because of the weights and measures. The United States Mint has always been paid face value for the coins that we produce. And uh, once we went off that weights and measures equivalent to the metal value, uh, we went to fiat currency in uh, 1971. But the makings happened in 1933. And one example is in 1964, we decided to, uh, at least the federal government decided to uh, take out silver from the content of our dimes and quarters. And what that ended up doing was uh, we were able to make coins in cheaper metals and the coins itself became fiat currency. So for example, today it costs about 10 cents to make a quarter. The Federal Reserve, still based off of the constitution, they pay us a quarter for a quarter. So that 15 cent difference is called seniorage Mm -hmm. that then goes into the treasury at the end of the year. And, uh, and the mint makes a lot of money on seniorage. And, uh, when the economy's really booming, I mean, that can get up to like a billion dollars of seniorage. Really? Yes. Wow. <laughs> so, 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 so it's a lot of money. For example, a dollar coin, uh, so a quarter might take 10 cents and you make three billion quarters. So, uh, you're looking at $450 million of seniorage. If you, on a dollar coin, it takes 20 cents to make a dollar coin. You sell it to the Fed for a buck. You make 80 cents of seniorage and you make a billion dollar coins. Well, you know, it's pretty, you know, do the math. It's really easy to get to a billion dollars. At the same time, because the Fed pays us face value, it might take us uh, today maybe 1.7, 1.9 cents to make a penny. Uh, so they only pay us a penny for a penny. So we lose, you know, 0.7 cents. You make 8 billion pennies, you lose $56 million. So overall, you might lose on pennies and nickels, but you make a lot of money on dimes, quarters, and dollar coins. So, so, so that's how the Fed, uh, I mean, that's how the Mint quote, makes money on 
Precious metal bullion, our mandate is to make it available to as many Americans as possible. So we want to charge the metal value that goes into it, so the spot price, plus our manufacturing costs. And in this case, we voluntarily put in about a 2% margin uh, that goes into an escrow to make sure that if we misprice the coin, the taxpayers don't accidentally subsidize a financial investor, right? And then if we don't use all that reserve, that escrow, that gets released back to the taxpayers into the general fund at the end of the year. Why do you think that that particular public policy decision that is is in place to get precious metals into the hands of as many individuals mm-hmm. as want to, to get yeah. it. Yeah. So overall, because I mean, yeah. that's opposite of Franklin Roosevelt, who mm-hmm. seized all the gold and, yeah. and made it illegal to, to have it. So uh, it's interesting. Yeah, so I'll, I'll answer a different question first, uh, which deals with the Roosevelt one, which will then help us answer the second question, which is why make it available. So Roosevelt, you have to understand why he sees the gold. And so when Roosevelt ran for uh, election against Hoover, he ran against Hoover's austerity. He basically said, austerity hasn't gotten us out of the Great Depression fast enough. And I believe we need stimulus. And when you look after Roosevelt got elected, when you look at his first six months, it was a blinding flurry of banking and monetary change. You know, through congressional, through Congress passing laws and him signing executive orders. And what he found out was after he got in, all the money that he could print based on our gold reserves had already been printed plus some. Mm. Okay. So he couldn't print any more money for stimulus programs, which is one argument that the fiat advocates would say the gold standard holds holds countries back. Yeah, we'll crucify mankind upon a cross of gold, right? Yeah. From, from mm-hmm. William Jennings Bryan. Yeah. Like it's too strict. We need this ability to devalue in yeah. order to have more flexibility. Now, at the same time, I could argue the gold standard from like 1870 to 1917, there was that whole period of time had about 1% inflation. Right. Well, Total. right. And we've had lots of different gold standards from when Isaac Newton originally invented yep. it uh, as master of the mint. Yeah, my, my <laughs> predecessor, his last 16 years of life. Uh, you know, all the way from there to, you know, we've had several different gold standards yes. uh, throughout, you know, so when we say the gold standard, like there's several different yep. ones. And but, some have worked better than others. Yeah, that's true. But in general, it's been the standard since 500 BC. Mm-hmm. to 1933 was the beginning of the end and 1971 was the final uh, nail in the coffin. So Roosevelt needed more gold to print more money. And so that's why he took this obscure executive order from World War I, uh, 6102, and modified it so that the government could force Americans to turn over their monetary gold into yeah, the government. Because they didn't have to turn in, say, wedding rings. Right. And they could keep certain rare coins. You know, I think it was up to five rare coins yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, uh, things that had, you know, rare coin value. And then you could keep a certain amount for industrial use. And so those were the only three kind of exceptions in there. So, and people uh, were much more compliant to the federal government at the time. So all that money came in, in droves. And so you would bring in a $20 gold piece and in exchange, you would get a $20 bill uh, back for it. And so the, all of a sudden overnight, he could triple the money supply because he had a lot more gold to print for money. But then he further devalued the gold and uh, had Congress pass a law devaluing it from $20 an ounce, which was the world standard, to $35 an ounce in the United States. And so then not only could he triple money supply, he could uh, you know, increase by magnitude to six. And with that, ended up funding the International Monetary Fund, the New Deal, the beginnings of the World Bank, the IMF, all came out of those additional funds during that time. So the reason why Roosevelt confiscated it wasn't that government didn't think you should own it. He needed the ability to print more money to stimulate the economy. Yeah, and our constitutional historians, there's kind of a a line there, the constitutional revolution of uh, 1937 Mm -hmm. between kind of this 
old deal and new deal, <laughs> uh, America, you know, the Wickard case and some of the stuff that came out of that, it, it really changed a lot of how our, our law works, particularly with like the interstate commerce clauses and stuff. Yep. So fast forward yeah, so to 1973, you know, Bretton Woods, uh, which happened during World War II to prepare the world for a new monetary system after World War II. The United States was the only uh, major country left standing and uh, our military industrial uh, capacity was at its peak. So everyone wanted to buy U.S. goods. And so all these finance ministers got together and said, you know, we printed way too much money. Cats out of the bag. We can't go back to the gold standard, uh, but we can't completely jump away from it. So we're going to make the United States the world's uh, reserve currency. The United States dollar could be exchanged for gold via governments that own the dollar as the reserve currency. But then all the other countries' monies, all the other currencies were based off the dollar, not off the gold. And there would be a system of exchange rates that would go through, and uh, and that's are going to be our new monetary system. Nixon finally it came to the end of that in 1971, 72, 73, when he finally said no more U.S. convertibility. Yeah, because Charles de Gaulle it was like, hey, I want I want my gold. I want my gold. <laughs> right. <laughs> and Nixon was like, well, that's that's a huge sentiment. <laughs> yes. We're not going to give it to you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. And so uh, come the uh, so during that time, South Africa. Uh, had these huge gold reserves. And so they developed the Cougaran because uh, they wanted that gold value. They needed to sell something. They needed to sell something. <laughs> and you know, they wanted their citizens to have gold, but they also saw an opportunity now that if gold wasn't going to be used as a, as a form of money, but it still had commodity value, they have a new product that fills that gap. And so Reagan was under pressure uh, when he became president to strengthen the embargoes against South Africa because of apartheid, and which would make the Cougarant illegal to buy from mm. that point forward. And so in comes Ron Paul, and Ron Paul says, I got the solution. The United States ought to be making its own gold bullion. And uh, so that law was passed in uh, 1984. Toward the end of 85 or 86, I can't remember, but the first gold bullion coins came off the mint presses uh, at the end of 1986. And so uh, from Ron Paul's perspective, now that we're totally on fiat currency and just knowing, you know, your, your listeners probably know where Ron Paul's coming from, he believed that Americans ought to have an alternative in their hands. Mm -hmm. And so he wanted to make sure that gold bullion was available at the cheapest price that could be made. So that's why our bullion legislation basically says you can charge the value of gold that you put in it plus your manufacturing costs, but we don't want you to make gobs of profit on this. This should be freely available to any American who wants it. And at the same time, we did the gold bullion coin to 22 carat, 26, 24 carat came under me in 2006. And those are the, the buffaloes? The, the buffaloes. Because, man, are they beautiful. They are beautiful, <laughs> beautiful coins, yeah. Uh, classic design. And, with, you know, uh, I'm really into design. So if you wanted to devote more of a podcast <laughs> later on, we can talk about symbolism and, and that type of thing. But we also got, in 1986, legislative authority to make silver bullion. And at that time, we had a huge amount of silver reserves. And the United States had decided, because uh, we went off this gold-silver ratio a long time ago, that we wanted to get rid of just a huge amount of silver. Well, uh, you could either dump it all on the market and sink the market, or you could have the mint make it into silver bullion coins. Sell it to the Hunt Brothers. <laughs> which came in the mid-'80s. Uh, so so uh, during that time, uh, we basically, based on manufacturing capacity, slowly depleted our silver bullion reserves and basically sold it to Americans through mint-made silver bullion coins. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, I, I am particularly interested. I'm glad I was able to give you some more information. Yeah, I mean, well, you well, know a lot. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pry about the symbolism on the coins and maybe yeah. even... Uh, 
like on the the new hundred dollar bill. You yeah. know, it looks like we've got some symbolism there too. I mean, yeah. maybe maybe you could and, go and, and you also have this movement now, this little grassroots thing uh, to put a woman, you know, on one of the changes of the bill, uh-huh. maybe the twenty or, or or so on. Yeah. So you know, and this gets back to our. Uh, earlier discussion of where coins come from, the relationship that the state, meaning government, had with coins. Coins originally were privatized, and uh, people found electrum, which was a natural occurring combination of gold and silver, and they would find roughly the same weight of chunks, and they would put it in the mold, they'd stamp it, but there was a problem. When you uh, privatize money, you could only make a certain amount of volume because you didn't have the economies of scale. When you find the electrum on the ground, it could be 90% gold, it could be 92% gold, it could be 91% gold. So even though you might have the weights down because of the purity issues, you don't know exactly the value in it. And then if you're going to purify it, you need smelting facilities, which typically even a rich person doesn't have the ability to buy a a smelting factory and uh, purify that large volume of, of gold. And so while uh, coins uh, uh, had existed for a while, it really didn't uh, change the world until it became gold coins. And that's when the uh, Libyans figured out how to refine gold. So the government took over the production and they very quickly figured out that there was a linkage between people's well-being and the government, and they wanted to really make that linkage strong. And so they started, uh, the Romans started putting emperors mm. on the front and Pax Romana on the back, making it unmistakable that they wanted the symbol of their government was we are power and wealth. Branding, marketing. Branding, exactly, <laughs> early branding. And it was very, very successful. And that's been the standard for coins ever since, that government could provide that third-party trust. As long as you trusted in the government, then you could trust what they made. Right. And that simplified a lot of things. Whereas you fast forward to today... It made it easier for people to perform economic calculation when they're trading their their coin for the the cotton or for the wheat or whatever. Absolutely. Oh, well, maybe I have 90% or 92%. You know, now it was a standardized unit of account that people could use. And so government provided a value added that uh, the private sector could not at the time. Now, I would argue that today, with the advent of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, the currency can now be privatized again, right? Taken away from government hands, which to me, when you have a digital entity, it doesn't have two surfaces that you could put you know, symbols of the state on, which to me also symbolized the democratization uh, that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies bring to currency. But, you know, talking about that, the designs that you like, the one that was used for the 24 karat uh, gold coin, which was uh, James Earl Fraser's Buffalo Nickel. And he was a student and follower of Augustus St. Gaudens. And Augustus St. Gaudens was probably, arguably, one of the well-known and most innovative artists of his time. And he was really thinking through what does American art look like? And Teddy Roosevelt was a great admirer of his. And so Roosevelt uh, was also a coin collector. And so when he became president, uh, he had a secret little project. And he went to St. Gaudens and he said, you know, America's been around for, you know, 125 years. We're not going to disappear anytime soon. But if you believe, as I do, that coins are an extension of a country's identity, then you would swear that you were a European country. And I want you, Augustus Incons, to design uniquely American coinage. Mm. And so what he came up with was, you know, so typical European coin, all based off the Roman coin, was a side profile bas-relief headshot on the front and symbols of the state on the back. What St. Gaudens came up with in his first coin was the uh, famous double eagle or $20 gold piece. And when you see that coin, you'll see Lady Liberty in full figure, frontal. Automatically, the image is completely radical compared to any other country's coins. Mm -hmm. She's wearing a Greek Roman gown, 
So what St. Gons was saying is the roots of liberty are in Western civilization. And uh, she's a quite attractive figure for the time. So he was saying liberty is very appealing. And she was carrying a torch in the front and an olive branch in the back as she was marching. And the uh, torch, if you're a Christian, you would believe that was the lamp of God, uh, God himself leading the way. And if you weren't, if you're a secularist, you would believe in enlightenment. Uh, so the age of reason. The age of reason, right. And the olive branch would mean peace. So what St. Gons was arguing on, on the face of the coin versus the power of the state, he was saying what America is, is... Uh, is a place of liberty, and where where liberty is led by God or enlightenment, and she follows, then peace will be res- will be the result in that country. So Ron Paul's peace, prosperity, and uh, like there's other wealth or something. <laughs> so when he created the legislation for the gold bullion coin, he specifically went back to St. Gordon's design. For a symbolic purpose. Interesting. Yeah. And then, uh, so the other two parts about the obverse uh, that I thought are interesting is you'll see her uh, walking up a a cliff, right? And in the valley below, you'll see the U.S. Capitol. Mm -hmm. So what he was saying was liberties visited the United States and is now marching forcefully into the rest of the world. So when you picked up the coin and liberty is looking right at you. She's marching to you because you're the rest of the world. Uh, and in addition, uh, he did what's called high relief. So most coin images are fairly flat. And the double eagle, Liberty, is so pronounced that they had a problem making the coin because <laughs> the coin wouldn't lie stable and therefore it wouldn't stack. Oh, right? you got to be able to stack your coins. Yes, you got to be able to stack your coins. <laughs> And so, but what he wanted was liberty to be so forceful, she was busting out of the coin (laughs) into the rest of the world. And then the symbolism on the back was a young American eagle uh, before the white comes in. So you know it was young, and it's flying over a sunrise. And so the symbolism is obvious. This is a young America at the very beginning of its day. And so just the symbolism on that coin showed um, that they were trying to separate this notion of America or of, of the state with power and wealth uh, to to being a statement of, of whatever that country's values were. And that's what America believed at the time. So it remains one of the most iconic coins ever created in the history of coinage uh, mm-hmm. for 2,700 years. Uh, so getting to the 24-carat design, Fraser wanted to create a uniquely American coin. And what can be more unique than uh, a, a side profile of a Native American Indian on the front, which was actually a composite of three different Native Americans that he knew. And on the back was the American buffalo. And part of that was due to the notion, which Roosevelt believed at the time, called frontier theory. And what frontier theory was, was the idea of what made America unique. And if you, because if you take a look at the first settlements in Boston and New York and uh, Philadelphia, uh, if you uh, didn't know where you were and you were right in the middle of those parts that still exist, you would swear you were in a European city. Hmm. But the further west you moved, the more uniquely American those cities became. And so the notion was, what created America's unique personality? And it was conquering the land through manifest destiny and moving west. And so uh, Native Americans uh, were honored uh, because even the conflict of fighting and defeating them helped shape the American identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's what Frazier was doing on his coin, was honoring that. So when you take a look at St. Gordon's $10 gold piece. And so he made the $20 and then the 10 and then he died. But the $10 piece had a profile of liberty, but she was wearing an Indian headdress. Oh, that's interesting. Again, the symbolism is, this is uniquely American. Liberty is liberty anywhere in the world, but there's a unique form of it that was created because of the land in America. 
So there's great symbolism in that. And so one of the things that I, as a maker of currency, former maker of currency, kind of regret, but um, am happy to leave it behind because of what promise digital currencies have, is that digital currencies don't have that same obvious visual symbolism. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating when we look at, you know, the map and how history's unfolded. Because Christopher Columbus, he kind of felt very... Uh, driven to discover the, this new world, and it, it wasn't necessarily that he found America; it was that he found the trade routes that, yeah. that enabled the trade winds, the trade winds, yeah. and the trade routes that enabled the economic development of America. Yeah. And when everybody came over and they and they began pushing west and expanding, uh, expanding into the continent, and you know, you got 160 acres of land like granted to you, you know, so pulled human capital into into America from the old world. And America didn't have to terraform. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we yeah. got pretty much the Erie Canal and that was it. Mm-hmm. You know, we had the Mississippi and and the Great Lakes and like unlike Europe, you know, which was very fragmented in its geography. And so, you know, kind of shifting the discussion. Oh, and and as all of America got built out, it you know, all of that trade went through Manhattan. You know, and Manhattan became kind of the nexus of this power and, and wealth and money because, you know, this entire new country, like all of that wealth generation flowed through Manhattan and then to the rest of the world. And so, you know, now as we're moving into a new age with cryptography at the forefront and computer science, Satoshi He's discovered the trade winds to cyberspace yes. with Bitcoin. I he, agree. He's discovered this ability. He's discovered this ability to actually economically build out this entirely new frontier that's built on math and reason and cryptography and stuff like that. And so, you know, I was just wondering, like, why are you so interested instead of coining in the physical realm? You know, now we're coining in the mathematical realm. Mm-hmm. Like, what, why do you find that so interesting? Yeah, so for me, uh, while I have a bare understanding of the math and the technology, uh, what motivates me as Ed Moy, the individual, is changing the world to become a better place. And I think from a currency perspective, because that's one area of practical expertise I have, I think we're coming to the limits of fiat currency. We've seen uh, currently central banks just open up the spigots and diminishing marginal returns on what little positive impact all the stimulus has had. Uh, we still, it's a great experiment. We don't know how it's going to end up, but the early signs are we can't squeeze any more out of this, right? And I look at this and I say a lot of that has gone to the wealthy in corporations because they know how to access it and uh, they have the trust of the people who have the money to be able to take advantage of that money, not take advantage, but to use that money to their advantage, oh, yeah, which they, is they, totally legal. They and, get to borrow it. Yep, they get to borrow very, it. Very low rates. And yep, exchange a high loan for a low interest loan. Uh, corporations get to financially uh, re-engineer themselves again with the loans or stock buybacks and all this other stuff. But in the end, I take a look at, you know, what needs to be helped. Sure, I'm glad the rich can get richer, you know, because one day I want to be rich too. But on the other end, I take a look at two and a half million people who are poor and unbanked. Mm-hmm. And where do they come in this whole process, right? So you're this woman who wants to be a entrepreneur and open up a bakery in your little village. There's no bank you're going to be able to borrow from because there's no bank branch, uh, there. And even if there was, you don't make enough money to warrant, uh, to come uh, be profitable under that bank's financial model. And in Africa, your, your bank fees are more than your cell phone fees. <laughs> That's right. That's, That's really right. kind of crazy. Yeah. And then, you know, if you wanted to uh, get a resource like a book on uh, how to manage a bakery, uh, you might be able to access that via Amazon, but you can't buy it. Because you don't have a credit card, you don't have a credit card because you don't have a bank account. So there are multiple problems that keep the poor poor. Cryptocurrencies completely disrupt that. And uh, that's one of the primary reasons why I believe that 
uh, this offers us a better future. So, I mean, would, would you kind of agree with the statement then that we're going to see the separation of money and state? Yes. So, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to put like a practical number to that, but all the pieces are there for it to happen. And I'm also a total free market person. And so that can only happen uh, is when people view more value in making that separation you know, uh, than what they're getting now. And, and the market will figure that out. Uh, and I don't know how it will figure it out because I'm not that smart, but I know people do things that end up advantaging themselves. And so if this will truly advantage them, this will then uh, have greater adoption over time. And uh, in a way, just as a student of currency, some people argue electronic currency is going to wipe out cash. I believe cash is always going to exist, right? Uh, that there will be multiple forms of currency, multiple forms of payment systems, and consumers will use them on the basis of what is most convenient for them for every individual transaction. Uh, so it's much like you take a look at the entertainment industry, right? Operas are supposed to get rid of symphonies. Musicals are supposed to get rid of operas. Uh, movies are supposed to get rid of musicals. Uh, you know, TV is supposed to get rid of movies. All of those things still exist. Maybe opera has, you know, 0.02% market penetration, but it still exists because there's, there's value to certain people to see that. Checking well, has dramatically decreased over the last 25 years. That will continue to exist, but at a much smaller penetration rate, and electronic transactions will continue to increase. But there will always be need for cash, in my opinion. What happens when all the electricity goes out, like you know, when Katrina hit, we didn't send credit cards down there. The mint was <laughs> called by the Fed to make extra money really fast, and get it to distribution depots, right? And so uh, when to answer your question, yes, I see that separation happening more and more in the future, but I don't see a revolution. I see an evolution. Maybe the evolution will move faster uh, than, than, than normal, but there will just be this market basket of currencies and payment systems. Yeah, individuals choosing the, the tool that solves our needs the easiest, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, it used to be we had three stations on TV and a couple newspapers, right? Yeah. And now we have, we still have newspapers, we still have those stations, but we also have blogs and TV and yeah. podcasts and DVDs and like YouTube and this and the other. So yeah, I, I very much agree. I think we're going to see a lot of financial innovation and evolution happening. Mm-hmm. How does that if the United States can get their act together and keep the cryptocurrency industry in mm-hmm. the United States instead of driving it away through regulation to the Isle of Man or to London or to Singapore, right. how can how can that actually be advantageous from a public policy standpoint for the United States mm-hmm. to have the forefront of this evolution and innovation happening here um, mm-hmm. instead of somewhere else? Yeah. So that's a really, really uh, great point, but it's really a tough question because my fundamental premise, and I've been on the other side, you know, so I've been the person in government responsible for making points. Saying that, governments, all governments, especially in the United States because of its preeminent role as the world's reserve currency, they have a monopoly on that, right? And do monopolies give up their monopolies easily? Not usually. <laughs> Not usually. Like, right? why, like, why should they, right? <laughs> right. Monopolies generally fall apart, though, when they become so large and so inefficient that they can't do the function that they're supposed to be doing. And then there's a popular uprising that forces a breakup and a new replacement. Which, you know, we had Fortune 500 CEOs calling Treasury in the financial crisis. Like, if you don't get this fixed, we won't be able to make payroll. Mm -hmm. And if ExxonMobil and Walmart can't make payroll, that poses severe risks to U.S. Systemic risks. Cohesion, systemic risk, and makes us geopolitically vulnerable to our different foes, whether it's Russia, China, uh, whoever. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So regardless of what you think of the dollar, it is a government monopoly at this point, which the government has every 
uh, interest in maintaining that monopoly. Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are relatively small. Well, they're just it, barely even proofs of concept. Is that, that? That, that, that's correct. And so uh, from a government perspective, I can say, and I work closely with the Fed, uh, I know the Fed has study groups that are analyzing cryptocurrencies and following its progress, right? So, so they have their eye on it. Oh, yeah, and they're really sharp. I mean, I've, I've had breakfast with the chief legal counsel for the Fed over payments and mm-hmm. some of his analysts and stuff. Yep. And, and in my opinion, like, one of them, actually, he, he understood Bitcoin better than most Bitcoiners do. Mm-hmm. So I, I found that very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> right. And the Fed's basically an academic institution, right? It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a university full of uh, economics professors. <laughs> and, and so they're really, really bright people, uh, not this uh, monolithic evil entity, right? They're trying to do the right thing, but they have their uh, tools available to them, and, uh, and they're trying to make the best of it. So I think uh, what we have right now is, and Janet Yellen was asked this a year ago uh, in, a, in one of her first hearings when she became a Fed chair, is, you know, what are you going to do about regulating Bitcoin because Mt. Gox heard a lot of our, and, and she went, well, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Well, Senator, uh, if Congress wants to do something about it, Go ahead and do it and give me the authority because I don't have any authority to regulate it. <laughs> Very smart answer. And it also showed that Jen Yellen not only knew about cryptocurrencies, but she also knew the what her legal limitations were. Mm-hmm. So in the vacuum of a cohesive cryptocurrency policy, which we don't have via a law, then the aspects of cryptocurrencies that intersect with the various regulatory agencies begins to kick in. And so the IRS looks at cryptocurrencies as a taxable event. So how do we get our fair share of taxes out of this? And um, the uh, Commodities Future Trading Commission looks at it as a commodity. And is it being fairly traded with transparency and, and, and this? So every agency looks at it from, a, and, and the law enforcement agencies uh, look at it as is anyone spending this just like a U.S. dollar on bad stuff? And if so, can we track it and get after the bad guy? We don't. We're not against cryptocurrencies, you know, as a concept, but we view it as any type of payment going to buy a uh, illicit uh, dirty bomb. We want to be able to follow that money track. And right now, Bitcoin skips over all the tolls and, uh, and everything else that we built on the highway. Right. Makes, makes it, makes it, it makes it harder. In some ways, it makes it easier because we know something's going on, but in other ways, it makes it harder because we don't know what it's being bought for and, and, and so on. Yeah, and I found it in- interesting. You gave an analogy. It's kind of like we've got this flying solar panel car, and yet the regulators want us to stop at stop signs even though we're flying over the roads. And so it's, you know, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. Meanwhile, the Isle of Man has actually passed both the Proceeds of Crime Act and the Designated Businesses Act, and it's been signed into law and then become effective, and it's very friendly to Mm -hmm. digital currencies. So it just makes me wonder, like, are we going to get our act together? Have we gotten our act together enough that we can at least keep the industry here? Yeah. So that's a long way of answering your question. So the answer would be, uh, I hope the United States provides a an environment where cryptocurrencies uh, can develop nearly their full potential. Uh, okay. Because the United States has such a huge impact on the rest of the world. Now saying that, I'm not worried if the United States doesn't because theoretically, cryptocurrencies are decentralized, right? And yeah. so somewhere... In the world, somebody's going to develop the next new best way uh, to make uh, a transaction less frictionless. And once that catches on, the market's going to say, we like this, and it's going to spread. Yeah, I, and I, I mean, we're seeing big movements from China. You know, they, uh, there are actually the number of people going into the Communist Party is at a 50-year low, mm-hmm. and there are actually government workers and they're mid-20s to mid-30s who are leaving their government jobs to go with tech startups. Mm-hmm. And now they're going with fintech startups. Yeah, right. And so, you know, it, it, Jamie Dimon, he's like, you know, these Silicon Valley guys want to eat my lunch. It's like, man, you are missing the ball. <laughs> yeah. It's not the Silicon Valley guys that want to eat your lunch. It's yeah. the Chinese that want to eat your lunch. That's right. That's <laughs> and, right. 
And so, you know, it's very, it's just very fascinating. If there's one thing that's a constant throughout history, it's, it's change. Mm -hmm. And we now have a fundamental technological change with this blockchain technology with Bitcoin and everything's like, we're going to change, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> and are yeah. we going to keep having typewriters or like mm -hmm. North Korea or are we going if to... If we're up to government, we still have buggy whip makers, right? Yeah. yeah because exactly. we had to protect those jobs in spite of uh, horse and buggy becoming outmoded. Yeah. So, well, we've uh, we've definitely gone <laughs> over, over your our time. But, but thanks so much for being with us. We've had the Honorable Ed Moy, the 38th Director of the United States Mint, uh, talking with us. And where can people find you if they want to learn more? Yeah, so if you want to learn more, uh, you two people out there listening to this <laughs> podcast, uh, you can go to my website, which is edmoy.com, E-D-M-O-Y.com. And I also have a, uh, a contact page that goes directly to uh, all my uh, devices. So if you want to reach out to me, uh, happy to connect with you. Oh, yeah. It was great. Thanks so much for being with us, Ed. Yeah, a real pleasure, Trace. Thanks for all the intelligent questions. Very seldom do I get a chance to dig deep. You know, normally when you're on CNBC, you're skipping over the surface trying to make an argument in two minutes. Uh, this was just really great to explore. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin Guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share Bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise, spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate. Yeah.